Well, hello, friends. It is a pleasure to have you join me this afternoon for our daily Bible study. Uh, we are glad to have you with us. Uh, for those of you who are regulars here at the study, today is going to be just a little different than normal. Today, we're going to not be looking at a particular text in Exodus, but rather we're going to be looking as a summary of the plagues that we've had thus far. And as you know, we've already studied the first nine plagues, and we're going to look at some of the themes that carry throughout them and see what we might learn in the midst of it. You might be interested to know that biblical scholarship will look to this topic of the plagues, and they'll point out that the text actually doesn't use the Hebrew word for plague as often as you might expect. In fact, it only appears in just a few short moments here in the Exodus story as it relates to plagues. And that's because in the larger biblical narrative, plagues actually appear quite often, and when they do, they tend to be related to the nation of Israel itself. The plague often comes as at the back end of God's judgment against the people. And so what we find is these interesting moments in which, uh, not exclusively, but often the people of Israel are afflicted for their lack of faith or their stubbornness or their unwillingness to follow God's directive. A lot of times that comes upon the people in some form of a disease. Um, and we know, of course, that both in the Old and New Testament, we see that a lot in skin diseases. These are things that we will find later in the Old Testament narrative of very strong prohibitions against uh, folks with unpure skin, with diseases of the skin to be excluded from the Christian community, or from the, sorry, from the Israelite community. And uh, so the plague then is often in that context seen as a form of judgment against the people themselves. Scholars, when they look to a text like Exodus, are going to refer them to them often as signs and wonders. And that may seem like a very sort of academic uh, distinction, but in some ways it's an important distinction, and it flows with the theme that Clint and I have been sharing as we've gone through these nine plagues together. Because in the midst of this story, these aren't so much plagues, certainly against the people of Israel. These are, as uh, Clint described yesterday, a judgment against Egypt and may be best understood as a form of God's divine warfare against Egypt. This is God setting himself against this rival nation, and more specifically, this rival leader who would set himself against the creator God. And this idea of sign and wonder, I think, is a helpful frame uh, because what it tells us is that we are fundamentally seeing in this God's action, proving himself to the nation of Israel, showing himself to be the divine one, their leader, the one who has called them and the one who will deliver them. It is a sign, in other words, to them, but it is also a sign against the judgment of Egypt. It is a way of showing the one who is greatest, the one who is Lord, the one who rules over and overrules. And in that way, we see the theme of the hardened Pharaoh's heart coming up over and over and over again. And we see then this sort of two sides of the same coin equation happening. The, the sign and wonder is both for the people of Israel a source of definition. These are my people, says the Lord. And then also an opportunity for them to see the one whose strength will carry them forward into the wilderness travels, which we know lie beyond the Red Sea. 
On the flip side, this is a way of showing that in the contest between the greatest nation and God, there is no contest. And so that, once again, we connect to that narrative that we had in yesterday's study. If you missed that, be sure to pause this and jump on over there uh, for a quick listen. But realistically, we see that this is also a way of God showing that God is the supreme leader and the supreme ruler. Another thing I want to point out as we look at a summary of these plagues is we've already pointed out as we went through them some cycles. Of course, you have that uh, Egyptian ruler. You have the magicians, uh, and they figure uh, very much in the beginning of the story. So uh, you know already about that theme about the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. You know uh, because we've been through it together, this uh, turning that happens, the Pharaoh will make a statement, I will let the people go, and then he will renege on that promise instead of actually letting the people go. Uh, he will then put his foot down, and uh, after the pressure's off, especially in the beginning of the story, uh, then he will decide instead uh, that he's going to keep the people and he's not going to keep his promise. So we know all of these themes. The thing that we've not talked about uh, once again comes from the academic community. And one of the things, I'm going to try to make this as quick and interesting as possible, but as we read the Exodus story, we tend to do so as a whole narrative. And that is indeed what it is intended to be. As we read the story of these nine plagues so far, and then we'll summarize uh, or we'll get into that tenth plague as we make our way through Passover tomorrow, what you discover is that there are actually a variety of different sources being referenced and woven together in a really interesting way. So one thing that uh, scholars will talk about is called the priestly cycle inside these plagues. I'm going to describe what I mean by that in a second. But what you have is a cycle of seven plagues in the non-priestly cycle. That would be plagues one, two, four, five, seven, eight, and then ten, which we've not gotten to ten yet. And in each, the motive of these is framed in death. So you have the death of the fish in the Nile, death of the livestock, you've got uh, the death of the firstborn. Uh, all of these show God's willingness and power over even the power of life. So here we have an interesting sort of, uh, if you allow me to, to once again use that war metaphor, I, th I think that shines in these parables. Interestingly, scholars point out that there are some other uh, parables that emphasize a different aspect. So they point to par uh, the plague number two, number four, seven, and eight. Um, these are ones where you have uh, human discomfort, uh, right? You have the idea of uh, boils. Um, you have the idea of darkness. You have the idea of uh, the death of crops. In these, it is not uh, human life or death that is being figured exactly, but rather it is a kind of uh, negative, uh, what, what's the way to say, uh, that all of these are, are places where the people are afflicted, but there is not an equation between life or death in these scenarios. Um, they point to ways in which you can see how Aaron is highlighted in some plagues and not in others. And they point out that what we learn through some of this is uh, that as the people of Israel look back upon the Exodus experience, they see in these stories different images of what will be true. At this point in the Exodus story, 
Aaron is not a significant figure yet. He's significant because, of course, we know that God gave Moses Aaron as a spokesman. Uh, But what we have in the plague stories is he sort of appears on and off. Strikingly, if you notice, in a lot of the parables, it's Moses doing the speaking. But later on in the story, as the nation of Israel looks back upon Exodus, they're going to remember Aaron, and Aaron is going to be an important figure in the priestly tribe. Ultimately, we know if we go further into the book of Exodus, Aaron is going to be given specific responsibility for the religious worship and observance of the entire nation. And this is unbelievably important for all of the stories that will follow. And so some of these plagues emphasize that priestly nature. And we're not going to spend a lot of time fleshing that out. Uh, There are many, many books written that talk about the textual nature of Exodus, what we can learn from it, uh, what uh, different aspects of the story uh, might emphasize different aspects of the nation of Israel and the stories that will follow. One thing that Clint and I have said numerous times in the midst of this study is that uh, we we should recognize how influential these stories are in the imagination of the Old Testament or the people of Israel and their Bible. We also have mentioned numerous times how substantial this story is for the Christian imagination. And a book that might be in the Christian lexicon, which you could resonate with, would be the book of Revelation. It's not always an easy book to study, but we find in it God's judgment against those who misunderstand, for those who set their hearts against God's way. Uh, we, we see this idea of the Antichrist being worked out even in the books of John, and then that leads into Revelation. Here we have some similar themes in Revelation to what we had in Exodus, where God brings down these miraculous signs and wonders, where God shows definitively no doubt to be offered of God's ability and ultimately revealing himself in those actions to those who are his people as the one who will deliver them, but simultaneously revealing himself to those who set themselves against God, the enemies of God, to show and make clear that ultimately God will be the one who will win in the end. And of course, as Christians, we know that the ending of Revelation is about God's strength and a clear determination to unify, to bring back, to deliver us from death into an eternal state of connection and peace and resolution with God. And and that is the way in which we can see a similar theme even reflected in our Christian New Testament scriptures. Now, when you look at Exodus, of course, that's not in mind for the original authors. For those writing this book, It is for them a representation of their national identity. We had in Genesis this story about God's call of some and the way that God worked within mysterious, miraculous, sometimes unbelievably strange ways to bring that call forward into the future. But here in the book of Exodus, I'm sure you've noticed in these plagues, we've moved away from the single person narrative in substantial ways. Yes, Moses is important, right? His leadership, his speaking to the Pharaoh, that is highlighted and emphasized. But notice how all of these plagues affect either all of the Israelites and the Egyptians, that was especially true in the beginning of the plagues, 
or we'll see how the Egyptians and the Israelites are separated, how there's light for the Israelites, but there's darkness for the Egyptians, how the Israelites' firstborn will be saved in the 10th plague, and how the Egyptians will lose their firstborn. This is an essential distinction that represents God having chosen his people. And, and as we traveled through the plagues, and I think we can see how in many ways, while this is a sign and wonder text showing God's uh, conquering of Pharaoh, greatest leader of the greatest nation of, of this day, also the one who's subjecting the people of Israel, like holding them as slaves, uh, literally holding power over them. But even beyond that, this is God choosing God's people. God's making it clear to the people themselves and to those who might hold them in bondage that you will not be able to define these people apart from God, that God has claimed them, they belong to God, and that God is going to be the one to rescue them from their bondage. That story, the story of God choosing a people, is the linchpin of the Christian understanding of what it means to be in the community of God, the body of Christ, because we see Paul making an argument in the book of Romans that is seeking to flesh out what we do with the fact that God has a called people, the people of Israel. And Paul is making this beautiful theological argument that makes the case that God intended to call the Israelite people so that God might call the Gentiles, so that ultimately the Gentiles might be a temptation or a call or a signpost. He uses different language that might draw the nation of Israel back to God and bring them back into the circle. There's this beautiful language of election of some for the sake of the other. And Paul talks about both the Christian and the Israelite communities as being elected for the sake of the other. And if you understand that for a moment, you're going to understand that what we've seen in Exodus thus far is a beautiful calling story about God, how, how God is miraculously making it clear to anyone who might look, whether one with eyes of faith or simply one who recognizes the sign and wonder itself, the darkness or the river turned to blood or the frogs or the flies or the boils or whichever sign you want to look at, at each one of these in particular uh, shows us clearly the definition that God has made of these people, the calling of these people. And then Christians, importantly, are later going to look upon that as an essential family tree so that we are grafted into that tree, that this becomes our story. Not in the exact same context, not saying that uh, Christians who are Gentiles can claim this, the same exact heritage or the same exact cultural meaning, but rather the same spiritual meaning, that if you look through it and you see with the eyes of Christ, we've been brought into this story so that God's calling of these people becomes a way about talking of God's calling for us. And this may sound theological, it may sound high-minded, it may sound academic in some ways. Uh, I hope as we will turn beyond Passover and the 10th plague, and once we move our way closer towards the parting of the Red Sea, you will be able to see some of the very practical, some of the very uh, real ways in which Exodus and the idea of passing through water is going to be uh, used later by the Christian church to be an image of Christian baptism, this idea of being 
brought through the water, experiencing what should have been death and instead being raised to new life, this promise and hope of resurrection. And the earliest Christians begin to see in this Exodus story, not just a story of God's calling the people of Israel, but ultimately through the eyes of Christian faith, looking through the lens of Jesus Christ, an actual image of what God's intention is for all who would call upon the name of the risen one. And as we talked about uh, yesterday, uh, talking a little bit about the idea of that lamb, that gets brought into the book of Hebrews. We see that uh, listed as Jesus himself is framed as uh, some of these key images here, uh, some of these key uh, linguistic and and, and metaphors and, and like the lamb as the one slaughtered and actually put above the doorpost, that physical reality, we also see signs and meaning beyond it. And, and that is this beautiful image that Christians are later going to look back upon and find as a kind of grafting in to their own stories. So this is an incredible uh, sort of growth as these plagues or signs and wonders grow there's a lot happening here. Scholars are going to talk to us about the textual aspects. Uh, they're going to talk to us about how uh, fundamentally these are both interpreted by the people of Israel as they look upon their own history and they see a character like Aaron, uh, who is uh, maybe not entirely fleshed out yet, but is visible and present in these stories because later his significance is going to be made clear. But on the other hand, you're going to be talking about the ways in which Christians found in these texts beautiful symbols and meaning of connection, a grafting into the people of Israel's story, this belief that God had intended all the way from the rescue of the Israelite people, a larger rescue for all humankind who might call upon God's name. And so we see layer upon layer. We see how these things are stacked one upon each other. And then we realize this ground we've been traveling in some ways, you know, very slow and methodical has actually been this, this unbelievably rich, uh, this unbelievably um, fruitful place of, of faith, not only for the Israelites, but also for anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. And so I hope you might hear today, if you come to the conversation asking why the plagues or why these signs and wonders, it, it, it's for lots of reasons. There's not just one, and that's the beauty of a story like this. It tells us enough that we need to understand the story of faith, but it is open enough that anyone who has eyes of faith are going to see in it just an unbelievable source, a, a kind of garden of a wisdom and truth and connection. And uh, my hope for today was not to explain it or to boil it down, but to maybe just give us a 20,000 kind of foot view. This is why the plagues. This is some of the things that we might learn from them. And uh, my hope is that in that you might be encouraged. Uh, maybe you might see a little bit more in it than what you had seen before. And I certainly hope that you'll join us tomorrow. We expect Pastor Clint to be back, and we will continue on with the Passover 10th plague. See in it the uh, unbelievable pivotal, uh, pivotal uh, moment here that's going to happen between God and Pharaoh. And then we're going to really see the ways in which God as deliverer carries the story forward. Friends, I hope you're blessed. Hope there's been something both encouraging and challenging in our conversation here today. Uh, if you found something good in it, please be sure to share that in the comments. Uh, subscribe for more comment or content like this and look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Thanks so much. Thank you.